0: And Wonder Woman aren't in this episode, but they have a thing for each other in this show, right? So they're totally under some mistletoe on the watchtower this entire episode. Yes? I don't usually do the headcanon thing, but that's my headcanon. The following is an in-depth story analysis. If you haven't seen this episode, you might want to before watching this review. I have rarely reviewed single episodes of television on Superhero Rewind, but when Simeon Scott asked if I'd do this instead of a movie, I decided to make an exception because it's Christmas. It's his favorite episode of this series. How could I say no to the man on Christmas? The real reason is because I didn't have any actual Christmas material to review for this 12 Days of Rewind event, so it seemed like a great idea. Plus, it's an episode I'd never seen of a show I haven't talked about. I was really surprised by how much Paul Dini manages to get into one episode. Yeah, he's known for that all over the Bruce Timm shows, especially in Batman the Animated Series, but we're talking about an ensemble cast of five characters. Again, no Batman or Wonder Woman in this one. I'm sure they're having a great time in a fourth subplot that may or may not be appropriate for a children's cartoon. And he writes three separate subplots, all exploring the major aspects of the Christmas holiday through the unique perspectives of the Justice League. The first series always watched a little stiff to me compared to Unlimited, and Comfort and Joy is refreshing because it kicks its shoes off and makes these characters feel more like regular people, right before the three-part series finale before the show changes over to Unlimited naturally. Now, I haven't seen everything, so I don't know if there's more of this kind of thing earlier, but this episode watches like Deanie knows this cast is a little dry and stoic for its own good. With the exception of The Flash, who's straight-up comic relief to make up for all the stiff upper lipness, and the deadpan ways Batman has always been sometimes funny in this universe, this team is all business. I don't know if Deanie is intentionally responding to that criticism here, but regardless, it's a pretty good answer. We usually only see these people when they're at work. They're trying to set a good, heroic example, and their relationships with their colleagues are mostly all about the work. So as soon as they go on vacation, they let their hair down, or they're encouraged to come out of their shells reluctantly, like Martian Manhunter. The episode title isn't just a generic reference to a Christmas song, it's a perfect description of the story. It's about the holiday break bringing comfort and or joy to each of our characters, and in one case, joy for the hero, but comfort and joy for a villain. Dini explores every major aspect of Christmas through this downtime episode, and without any sappy platitudes or preachy messages. Nobody's trying to save Christmas like a damsel in distress, there's no true meaning of Christmas speech, and the real Santa Claus doesn't show up asking our heroes for help. Although Clark does, hilariously, pretend to still believe in Santa when he's at his parents' house. Usually I prefer Christmas episodes that aren't afraid to tell a regular story with the season as the backdrop or the thematic crux of the story, because it can be really lame to get rid of everything we like about a show to do a really sappy after-school special kind of plot, like Power Rangers' Once Upon a Ranger, where there is no morphing or Megazord fights or anything. I worried this might be like that, just a series of typical Christmas situations with little kids learning obligatory lessons from our heroes about goodwill and giving and such. Impressively, it is an episode where the superhero stuff isn't front and center. There's a bad guy in one subplot, and he doesn't have a master plan, and our heroes don't come together to save the day except in the teaser, to stop a big ball of ice from hitting an alien planet. But it isn't lame. And if anybody can make a seemingly typical Christmas episode of a superhero show something that transcends the cliches, it's Paul Dini. The man loves Christmas. I think he might be as much of a Christmas fan as he is a Batman fan. He wrote Christmas with the Joker, and he co-wrote Holiday Nights in the new Batman Adventures, which includes a short loosely based on his comic book Harley and Ivy Story. And he created a Christmas-themed comic character, Jingle Bell, the spoiled teenage daughter of Santa Claus. Deanie and his wife apparently throw epic Christmas parties every year. He likes Christmas like Garfield likes lasagna. Considering he's already done his bit with Batman and Christmas, it's smart that Dini leaves Batman entirely out of this episode. Batman has already had his bah humbug then reluctantly come to sort of appreciate the spirit of the season episode when he sits down and watches It's a Wonderful Life at the end of Christmas with the Joker. Although now that I'm thinking about it, I wonder if that movie hits too close to home for Batman. We're told he's just up in the watchtower here and his friends talk about him like he's still a total Scrooge. Maybe he's just keeping appearances, or maybe It's a Wonderful Life had the opposite effect on him Robin was hoping it would. After all, we expect he's better for watching it, but we don't actually see his reaction to it in that episode, and we're not told what Wonder Woman is doing. Putting aside my headcanon, I'm assuming Dini left her out because he'd have one too many stoic characters from non-Western societies that would need to either learn to appreciate Christmas or introduce their own customs to their friends. And we do both of those with other characters. It would also give Dini two women from warrior cultures, and that's maybe too much redundancy. This episode tells three pretty heartwarming stories that don't verge too far into sappy territory, and it's really thoughtful about the scenarios. They all come naturally from the personalities of the characters Dini is working with, so it's all about how different these people are and their diversity of culture and experiences. You've got a couple humans, two aliens who didn't grow up on Earth, and one alien who did. So we see how the people raised on Earth each celebrate Christmas in their own unique way, and we introduce the holiday to those who don't. And each of them gets something different out of that experience. Each subplot is about tradition, giving, and family, the three ideas we most associate with Christmas, at least as a secular holiday. These stories are all intercut between each other, rather than presented as separate vignettes from start to finish. And each story includes a major element usually present in DCAU episodes, internal conflict or soul-searching, a supervillain, and big action set pieces. Mixing them all up creates the feeling that all the trappings of a regular episode are always present, even though they're only each present in one subplot. One story involves Clark insisting on bringing Martian Manhunter, John Jones, home with him to Smallville for Christmas, after John coldly says the holiday has no meaning for him. Never occurred to me that there are kind of two of our seven heroes on this team named John. John is uncomfortable with the holiday and he feels awkward at the Kent's home, partly because he's just unfamiliar with the customs. He just doesn't belong there. He's too tall and has to duck under door frames, the cat hisses at him when he tries to pet it. I do wonder what John did last Christmas. This is, after all, the second season of the show, but I assume it has more to do with the loss of his family, and I like that that's not spelled out. If you're familiar with the character and the series, you know that, and if not, You really don't need to, to appreciate what he's going through. It's clear he can't go home to Mars, and he's an alien that doesn't belong. And wonderfully ironically, learning about Christmas from another space alien that's as typically American as it gets. John has a bit of a Jack Skellington arc here. He's mystified by holiday customs, and he's not prepared to participate. Martha Kent gives him a Christmas sweater for a gift, and he apologizes with nothing to give her. As he broods about his loneliness and his otherness, he does manage to keep a sense of humor, though. I like it when he gets the sweater, it's too big, and he changes his mask to fit, saying, I can grow into it. He's sympathetic throughout, and never seems pathetic. He's sad until he starts exploring the town in human form, again like Jack Skellington, except he doesn't break out into song. What's this? And discovers both his comfort and his joy, first in playing Santa Claus for a little girl who doesn't think Santa will come to take her milk and cookies, and then in being entranced by church music. I appreciate that while nobody comes right out and talks about Jesus Christ or anything, Dini also doesn't shy away from the religious aspect of the holiday that's important to a lot of people. By the end, John is singing old Martian songs in Kara's bedroom, where he's staying, and he's petting a cat in his regular Martian form. He finds a way to get comfortable and be himself when he finds a little familiarity in these strange earth customs, and I love that he comes to this in disguise. He pretends to be human, He finds some joy in the season, and then he loses even the more human-looking Martian Manhunter facade and physically becomes himself. And now the cat will sit with him, because it's not turned off by the tension it felt in him earlier. And like a lot of the best episodes of these shows, that's all conveyed visually. None of it's talked about, except Martha Kent calling Martian Manhunter singing the Christmas gift he forgot to bring. Throughout the episode, John sees a side of Superman he didn't know about, even though it's not unfamiliar to an audience that's watched much of his series. And that relaxed, down-to-earth Clark sets the example for John, showing him that coming home is all about taking your shoes off and being the real person you are, that work in society often denies you. Clark doesn't constantly try to explain Christmas to John. He doesn't tell him what to do. He just does what Superman does best. He leads by example. Every character feature doesn't get an arc. After all, what does Clark, at this point in his life, have to learn about Christmas? He serves as an informal guide to John, a role that could have been like Neelix in Voyager, overbearing and demanding. But he's just a good friend. It's the strongest of the three subplots, and that ending is really heartwarming. So that subplot gives us, of course, the soul-searching stuff. Flash's story gives us the supervillain, but it's the villain that really has the arc. Though there is something for Flash to learn, to a lesser degree. Every year, Flash dresses up as Santa Flash, he's already wearing a red suit so he just throws on a fake beard, and brings whatever the kids at a local orphanage want most. Now, I'm not saying that's not wonderfully charitable, but he is the Flash. Couldn't he do that for, like, 6 or 12 or 24 orphanages? Isn't he so fast that if he could come up with the resources, he could actually be Santa Claus? I'm sure there are kids in this universe that use that as a plausible explanation for Santa Claus. How does he get to all those houses so fast? Well, he's got the speed for us. Flash talks to the kids, and they want the big faddish toy of the year that is, of course, sold out everywhere, DJ Ducky who raps and makes fart noises. It's only slightly less annoying than Tickle Me Elmo, which hadn't been out too long before this. It's obnoxious, but Flash isn't going to criticize. These kids are orphans. But he's also basically a big, silly kid himself, so he kinda likes DJ Ducky, too. Flash runs all over the city, and he can't find one at a single store. He goes to one that's closed with an angry mob of parents outside, ready to break the door down and claiming the owner has stock, but he's hoarding it. Neither the episode or even the subplot is really a commentary on the commercialism of Christmas, it's just realistically there in the background, which I appreciate. There's a stupid toy that parents are practically killing themselves over, totally missing the point of the holiday and falling prey to rampant consumerism. And there's not a big lesson about it, it's just an element of the story, not a cynical statement or a cautionary tale, it's just there, because that is an undeniable part of modern Christmas. The episode itself is Superman. It makes no judgments, it's just positive, and it sets the example. Flash finally goes to the manufacturer of the toy, and they give him the last one, because of all the times he saved the day. That would be wrong if Flash was taking special treatment for himself, but he just wants to bring some joy to the orphans. No joy or comfort, for that matter, to the woman running the place, though. She seems real nice and patient, but I wonder how long she'd have to listen to that thing before she had the urge to bash it in with a sledgehammer. But it doesn't matter, because she ultimately won't have to listen to it rap or make potty noises. The ultra-humanite, who Flash unfortunately and fatefully runs into on his way back to the orphanage, is going to break it in a fight with the Flash. Feel bad about it after Flash gives him a speech about how the kids deserve a little cheer during the holidays, and then modify it to tell the children the story of the Nutcracker. In his voice, start to finish, complete with the Nutcracker score, unless that's just in the episode's soundtrack, for our benefit. I honestly couldn't tell you. But even still, I can't figure out how the ultra-humanite had time to record that. Did he just happen to have a recording of that story in his own voice, lying around? I doubt it. He's the Scrooge of this episode, for all of ten seconds, calling Christmas a garish, hollow charade. "...insincere goodwill all around," he says. He knocks Flash out after his short speech about how Ultra-Humanite should appreciate the idea of passing goodwill on to children, considering he thinks of himself as the personification of human advancement. And for a second, we think that's going to lead to a nefarious plot, only to see Flash wake up to Ultra-Humanite hard at work, fixing and, quote, "...improving the toy." It's believable because Flash appeals to the humanite's motivations. He says Flash's goal is a noble one and decides to call a truce in honor of the season, he says. But I'm distracted by the way he improves the doll. Was Flash really out long enough for him to read an entire 38,000-word book? I mean, maybe it's abridged, but still... I appreciate that we don't jump to another subplot right after Flash gets knocked out. Seeing him wake up right away to what Ultra Humanite is really doing isn't a letdown, but it might have seemed that way if we thought he was in danger for another scene or two of one of the other stories before jumping back to him. Deni has a good handle on pacing and organization of scenes, and that's a good example. Flash is surprised to find some heart inside Ultra-Humanite's jaded and angry exterior. But the real opportunity for change here is Ultra-Humanite. They both take the toy to the orphanage. Flash is Santa Flash and the villain as Freaky the Snowman. And the kids listen to the story. Luckily, none of them revolts when it's not exactly what the commercials were selling. Flash seems to appreciate that not only is Ultra Humanite showing some compassion and living up to his obsession with refined culture and bettering the human race, but he's actually helping these kids to find a deeper appreciation for the holiday and what it's supposed to stand for. At the end, Flash rewards the Ultra Humanite in prison with an aluminum Christmas tree, which takes him back to his childhood. I like that we get to see a softer side of a villain, as we're seeing a more relaxed side to some of our heroes and that it's consistent with this character. I'm also glad we're left with Martian Manhunter's ending, because it's the more profound of the three, but this one is touching too. The last subplot is the weakest, but it's still charming and fun. It features Green Lantern and Hot Girl sharing each other's customs for celebration, not just one embracing the other, like with Superman and Martian Manhunter. It focuses on the action element as it's sprinkled throughout the other two stories to break up the talkier and more introspective stories with the thing kids are most here to see, fighting, first with an epic superhero snowball fight, which John introduces his would-be girlfriend, Shiera, and then a bar brawl on another planet, which she introduces him to after she tries to come up with some equivalent to Christmas on Thanagar. She doesn't understand the human obsession with holidays, though she respects John's love for Christmas and enjoys it with him as much as she can. As a warrior, though, she was raised to celebrate after victory in battle, so they go looking for a huge bar fight. To celebrate her way, which John is surprised by and he can't believe how much fun she's having doing the thing they do out of necessity on a weekly basis as members of the Justice League. I like it when he says, you think you know a person. Dini never just writes for the kids. Just before she starts the brawl, Shiera says, there's one thing that would make this evening perfect and John, who's romantically interested in her the whole series, clearly thinks he's about to get lucky. Then they fight every alien in the place and by the end he's exhausted falling asleep with her nestling up beside him. There's not really a character arc here, so much as an exchange of cultural experiences that add up to a subtle first date. Their joy is found at different degrees in different settings, each humoring the other to facilitate the other's joy, and it ends with comfort for both. I found a lot to write about here in just these 22 minutes, and I'm astounded at how much Dini manages to say and do, without coming out and saying too much at all. It's not my favorite Christmas episode of television, but it's one of the best at capturing the spirit of the season, not generically, but through the lens of its diverse cast of characters. I'm giving this episode of Justice League a 3.5 out of 4. And there it is, the end of the 12 days of Superhero Rewind. Thanks so much, guys, for listening to and supporting these shows. I'd love to hear from anybody who managed to listen to all 12 day-to-day. Let me know. If you'd like to support the channel, go to patreon.com slash and for just $2 a month, you can get regular episodes of Superhero Rewind three days early, and I'm going to try this year to put them out on a much more regular basis. Also, at the $2 tier, you'll have access to Geek Geekfolution After Dark, our twice-month uncensored talk show and at the $10 tier you can become a Patreon producer and I'd like to say thanks so much to all of our producers right now including David Harpstrite, Dylan Muschiello Nick Manna Eamon Singleton Cletus Winslow Remy LeBlanc Derek Jacob The Day Ghost Michael Gulick Magpie's Nest Productions Kareem Roberts Lot 10 Underground Michael Mark Micheletti, Carl Maxi, Dimitri J John Johnson Jacob Schneider Nathan Hanford, Aram Zangana, Joey Crouch, Sartaj Govin Singh, Ethan, Guidi, Caleb, Malik Myers, Lone Wolf Jedi of Gotham, Chewbacca's Lover, David Crabtree, Simeon Scott, Justin Hayes, Marie Flowers, Clark Whitfield, Ian McKee, and Jeffrey Patron. Happy holidays, everyone. Merry Christmas. Stay safe over the break. I hope everyone gets wonderful things for the holiday and that you spend some great quality time with your family. I'll see everybody again very shortly with more content here on the channel. I'm Captain Logan, and once again, Merry Christmas.